Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. Uh, we're back in Genesis this morning, starting at the beginning, uh, or as uh, Laura said uh, today, continuing at the beginning now that we're uh, on to week two here. Last week, we got to talk a little bit about uh, the bigger picture, God doing something new. Uh, God created in eternity past. God is going to be creating for all time. And the way that we see God's new and creative work right now is the work that he does in us. And just as we heard right there. Like, God has something new for us to step into. I want to look at a slightly different aspect of Genesis 1 this morning. Uh, We're going to do 12 weeks in the book of Genesis. We could do 12 weeks in Genesis 1. We really could. There's there's so much here. Uh, But I want to say, too many people have done 12 weeks in Genesis 1 and missed the rest of the book. And there is so much else going on in Genesis. So we're, we're, 12 weeks is like not enough to cover all of it, but we're going to try to hit key figures, key themes, and try to understand the big picture. What is going on in this first chapter of this unified story that is scripture? So as a way of understanding Genesis 1 well, um, one of the one of the most important elements to, to understanding an ancient text well, to understanding any text, any piece of literature anywhere, One of the things we have to do is ask, when and where was it written? What was the cultural world into which it entered? What was it speaking to at that time? And that makes ancient Near Eastern backgrounds a super helpful part of understanding Genesis properly. Um, we can we can start to understand uh, funny little details. Like if you were to look at day two, have you ever read day two closely in Genesis one verses six through eight? Uh, and God said, "Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water." So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. To which the modern Western mind goes, what? (laughs) A sky between the waters? We have water down here. We have sky. Sometimes it rains from above, but we understand that system now. There's not like waters and waters with a sky in between. But their, their way of viewing the world was very different. The ancient cosmology, the ancient way of uh, understanding the way the world like looked and fit together, all the pieces and everything, was very different. They viewed the sky as being topped with a, like a solid dome, basically. What we would call like the firmament. And above that dome was this like tub of water. This like storehouse of water, and every once in a while, the ceiling would get a leak, and that's when it would rain. Like there would be a hole in the top of that little dome, and when that opened up, we would get rain or whatnot. Uh, on the top of that dome as well, at night, you could see that the stars were etched into the top. It wasn't that there were constellations all revolving around; it was that stars had been like etched into the very top of the dome. Just a different way. Not wrong, just 
different. We might know, quote unquote, know better, but science is about like putting together wisdom with the stuff that you know at the time, the best data from the time. Their perception of the way the world was put together was all just based on their observation. And that's fine. It's, just, it's important to remember that the text was written to them, not to us, not to try to appease our like modern sensibilities about, about stuff. So it's, it's helpful to get a sense of backgrounds from, from that sense. Uh, I mentioned it briefly last, last week, but in the ancient world, to create something was to give it a function or to even give it a name. Uh, creation wasn't so much tied to this idea of bringing into material existence something out of nothing. So when Israel wrote down their creation story, they weren't so much concerned with the how or the when of things coming into being. They were concerned with the why. We're really going to try to get into the why today, the purpose of it. Um, Israel wasn't the only one with a creation account. Their surrounding cultures had ways of accounting for the beginning of the universe. There were Egyptian creation accounts. There were ancient Mesopotamian uh, creation accounts, uh, one of them called the Enuma Elish. Um, all of these accounts are similar in that they are marked by divine conflict. They are kind of like bloody affairs. They are kind of intense, gory, and the gods are just at war. And out of that chaotic battle-type scene comes the creation of the world. And at the end of those accounts, like in the Enuma Elish, you get this little footnote, oh, and humanity was created as well. And humanity is just like this little add-on at the very end, and there's usually some sort of note about humanity being there to serve the gods, to appease the gods. That was their sense of the way things came to be in the first place. Divine conflict, humanity as an afterthought. Which is pretty significant when you start to look at Genesis chapter 1. Here we find not divine conflict... There's, there's not a whole lot of conflict here in Genesis 1. Instead, God speaks and the world reacts. God intends and so it is. God commands and creation falls in line. Whatever God says, that is the thing that happens. No conflict here. Instead, a God, a loving God in charge, intending graciously and making it happen. So there's a lack of conflict for sure, but what I want to spend today looking at is this important point, that humanity is intended to stand out as the crown jewel of the Genesis 1 creation account. Humanity is there to stand out. I would say like a sore thumb, but it's like a, it's a, it's a good thing though, like... One of the ways the ancients uh, cultivated an awe of humanity in the created order was by paying attention uh, to the created order itself. Um, you find this in Psalm 8. I can never talk about Genesis 1 for too long without getting into Psalm 8. In reflecting on the grandeur of the created order, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What is mankind that you are mindful of? of them, just an awe 
that God would even think of us and then place us just a little bit lower than, than the heavenly beings and give us a lofty, lofty role. But Genesis 1 is all about the utter uniqueness. I, I want to look at just a few points, a few ways that the text uh, tells us that um, humanity is unique in this story. First of all, there is a whole lot of extra space allotted to the creation of humanity. Lots, like a disproportionate amount of space is given to the human story. Uh, I've got a couple of images up here. When you, uh, when you see them, you'll be shocked that I was the one who drew them. <coughs> uh, sorry, sorry to it. I found this app on my iPad and I was like, oh, I'll scribble around. And so you'll probably have to be... Um, You'll have to suffer through these every once in a while. Sorry about that. Uh, but this, this here shows the parallel account of the first six days, or first like five and a half days. Uh, we get light and dark formed and then filled up on day four with sun, moon, and stars. We get waters and sky separated. Now, hear, hear the word separated a few times throughout the course of, of Genesis. It's not brought out of nothing. It's God's playing with some Plato. God's playing with something that's already there. He's separating out. Did God bring everything out of nothing? Yes. Is that like the main point of Genesis 1? It doesn't seem like it. Waters and sky separated on day two, paralleled with day five, that water and sky gets filled with stuff. Uh, these are birds uh, and this, uh, some fish. This is open to interpretation. Could be a shark, could be a dolphin, could be something yet undiscovered. Looks more. <laughs> it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to be a represent, representation of really anything you might know about. <coughs> um, these are probably Jaegers. Jaegers are awesome birds that fly out over the ocean. Um, we can talk about that later. Day three, land, plants. The land is put there. God peels back the water, and boom, there's land. God tells it to do something, and it immediately knows what to do. Plants sprout up. Awesome. And then in parallel to that, day six gets filled up with land animals, not a moose. I almost drew a moose. That's so funny that, that Brooks said that. I almost drew a moose, and then I was like, ah, too involved. So there's some, like, I mean, you, maybe deer, maybe, maybe deer. Um, but the whole point is it's a, it's a really beautifully parallel account. I put in here, there's three verses from day one, three from day two, five from day three, six, four, and two for days four, five, in the first half of day six. And a good reminder here that the verse numbers were put in after the fact. They're not part of the inspired original text. They're just there to help us kind of find stuff. Um, but in general, if you just look at Genesis 1 there on the page, it, it's pretty even. It's a pretty nice, beautifully crafted story to show, look how God formed, look how God filled, look how God gave function and purpose to this whole world. It's perfectly parallel until, next image, humanity gets added on. Now, anytime we're reading something, any piece of literature, and there's a beautiful cadence, a, a, a parallel nature to what's going on, and then something throws off that balance, we should be paying attention to the thing that throws off the balance as perhaps a clue as to what the whole thing is really about. If you're reading through poetry and you come across four couplets, and, but then the last one has a little bit longer line in the last couplet, that's a clue. The poet's maybe trying to say, 
pay attention to this. Genesis 1 is essentially a piece of poetry. It looks just as much like poetry as it does like prose. And here's the off-balance piece. Beautifully parallel account. And then we get the rest of the chapter. Verses 26 through 31, which doesn't sound like a whole lot. It sounds, that's six verses altogether. But if you look at it with your eyes, look at how much extra space is just devoted to the creation of humanity. Maybe there's something there. Maybe we should try to pay attention to the things that God has asked us to pay the most amount of attention to. Interesting thought as we read our Bibles. So I'm going to read it. I'm going to read verses 26 through the end of the chapter. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts on the earth and the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning. The sixth day. The second half of day six gets way more attention. So... The uniqueness of humanity is seen in the extra space allotted. It's seen also in a, the distinct role that is given. Humanity is not the only thing, the only character in this story that is given a divine command from God. God blesses the creatures. Uh, God blesses the, um, here we go, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the water and the seas, let the birds increase on earth. That's verse 22. So the sea creatures and the, the birds get a, their own little divine role. Uh, so do the land animals. I, I love this. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground. It's like the author was like, God made all of the animals. He made cows. And then he realizes like, oh, if we're going to list them all, it's going to take a long time. So then he just goes back to, he, just made, he made all the animals. Yeah, I, I love it. <laughs> Cows are the one that made it. Should have been moose. Oh, well. <laughs> according to their kinds, the livestock, according to their kinds, and all creatures. God blesses them as well, but it's a different role. For the creatures, the role is do your thing, right? Fill the land, increase, multiply. Swimmy things, you do your swimmy thing. Flying things, you do your flying thing. I made you for a certain purpose, go do that thing. And God says, to that, God says that very thing to humanity as well, be fruitful, increase in number. He says that as well, but then it changes. Verse 28, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds 
in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Everything else in the story is told to relate uh, to exist in relation to itself, but humanity is there to rule over, to be like God's stand in like authority over the rest of it. A lot of commentators have, have noted that uh, part of being made in God's image in this story seems to be God putting humans there as his little vice regents, his little vice kings to rule in his stead, to carry out the very work that God is doing, but as humans here on earth being the ones doing that work. There's a distinct role given to humanity. The uniqueness of humanity is also seen in this Address from God. We get commands to birds, commands to fish, commands to land creatures. Sure, but nowhere else does God, like he does in verse 29, turn directly to humanity, face-to-face, intimate. I give you, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, every tree that has fruit. God's attention turns to humanity in a unique way. There is the seedbed here for an intimate relationship that God is not going to have with any of the rest of the created order. There's extra space allotted. There's a distinct role given. There's a unique address from God. And finally, there's a new proclamation. At the end of every day to this point... God has said, and God takes a step back from his work, takes a look at it and says, it was good. It was good. It was good. All, all the work so far, good. Ready to go is, is probably a good way to translate that. Ready to go. I made this table, and it's a good table, which means it's ready for people to sit at it, put food on it, eat at it. Good. Verse 31, God saw all that he had made after day six, and it was very good. Very good because all of it was complete, yes, but complete only because the key piece, the crown jewel, had been placed. Humanity is now on the scene, and God can finally fold his hands and say, yes, this is the way it was supposed to to be. All of these things point to what it means to be made in God's image. Yeah, kiddos, this is, this is going to be your time. Yeah, the God's image thing. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Also, if somebody wants to like draw a world with a, with a firm like sky, like firm, firm dome on top of the sky, somebody wants to color that for me, like that would be fun. I made my college students do that this week, so <laughs> they had fun. All of this points to what it means to be made in God's image. There's been so much ink spilled over the years trying to figure out what exactly it means that we're made in God's image. And there's, there's so many things that we could talk about, so many different directions we could take. But let's just take the clues from the text itself. We're made in God's image. What's the thing that we see God doing here in Genesis 1? Well, God is creating. He's making new Stuff Maybe part of being made in God's image is that we are intended to be creators as well. We're created to create. We are made to make. Work is meant to be a good part 
not a fallen part, but a good part of our lives. What else is God doing here? He's bringing order from chaos, right? Tohu, vavohu, the earth was formless and void, and God forms it and makes it into this beautiful thing that we get to, that sends us into worship. Now, he brings order from chaos. I always like to, to say, uh, if you're an accountant, like you are bearing God's image in the world today. You are bringing order from chaos. You are doing Genesis 1 stuff. Accountant, librarian, so every job in some sense or another is supposed to be bringing order from chaos. But what I find most fascinating here about being made in God's image is the simple claim that God is making now about the world. If you got to say, if you want to see me on earth, look at humanity taking this role seriously, living out its place in the world faithfully. It's an audacious claim from the very first pages of scripture. God says, if you want to, if you want to know what God looks like, look no further than humanity? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Have you seen one of us? <laughs> Not so great most of the time. But this was the intended way from the very beginning. God put his image in the world. This is why God hates idolatry so much, right? Because it's us putting an image of God in place of God, and God gets so mad at idolatry all throughout the Old Testament. Why? Because he goes, I've already put my image into the world, and it is you. Don't settle for a phony image of what God actually is. Instead, understand that God has imprinted his very image. Who God is, is inside of you. Now go receive that and go live it out. That's the call of Genesis 1. It's a wild thing. You can understand why the psalmist would say, what is mankind that you are mindful of us? So we need to get a couple things right about the image of God. First of all, it's true of everyone. And we don't always like this. Right? Every single person is made in God's image. Uh, the, the people that you like, right along with the ones who annoy you, the ones who know how to use the left lane and the ones who do not know how to use <laughs> the left, left lane, Joshua said as a reminder to himself. <laughs> Your best friend your worst enemy. Uh, Democrats and Republicans right next to each other. W whatever uh, like group that comes to mind where you're like, oh, well, but that group too. Your favorite family members and the ones who make you dread the holidays. 
I was talking with a mentor uh, just last month, and he said, the more I read the Gospels, and the more I read Jesus, I, I'm pretty sure his ethic is like, we're not, not allowed to like, have dislike in our hearts. <laughs> we're not allowed to like, dislike others. Which is a pretty stern thing to think about. That's pretty difficult. I want to be clear. It's not that we just roll over and, um, and we overlook offenses and we sweep painful um, people and experiences under the rug. That's not the point. Um, there are so many things in the world that grieve God's heart. Oh, we've all done those things, by the way. Um, there's so many things that grieve God's heart, but there's a difference between the things that grieve God's heart and that grief that he experiences. And there's a difference between that and the disdain and the disgust that we allow to fester in our hearts over time towards another, whether it be an individual, a people group, a segment of society, whatever that is. There's a huge, there is a world of difference. And to each and every instance where we might think, where we, where we might be inclined to write someone off, we have to understand that God has not. God has made that person in his image as well. So every time we snub someone, every time we gossip about someone, every time we say something untrue about another, the list could go on. We are devaluing. We are saying, I don't care so much that that person is made in God's image. It's an insult to the way that God created the world in the very first place. It may feel lighthearted or like a, like a small thing to us, but it is not to God. It is not to God. Everyone is made in God's image. It's true of everyone. Um, it's also true of you. That includes you. Uh, I heard uh, Steve Cuss this week say, um, how, how different would you talk to yourself if the rules for talking to yourself were the rules that you use for the way that you talk about other people or to other people? I don't know about you, but I have a list of names that I reserve just for myself that I would never actually call someone else. I get frustrated with myself in a way that I get frustrated with no one else. I get mad at me. And when I'm mad at me, I don't say nice things to me. And in that moment, that is just as significant of a snubbing of the image of God as anything else is. The way that we treat ourselves is part of the way that we are meant to treat others. If we can't get this right, we're going, we're going to miss out on the fullness of what it means. We downplay the way that this works in our lives. This others-oriented disposition, that ought to mark who we are, but that is not at the expense of thinking about carefully who we are and how we treat ourselves. 
as well. Ultimately, ultimately, Genesis 1 is a gospel proclamation of grace. We do ourselves a great disservice when we relegate grace to this little like personal salvation program that we see develop in some of the letters of the New Testament. That whole piece of scripture, very important, yes. But it's not the only place that we see the grace of God. We, we need to start to see all of scripture as unfolding, telling one big story. And this is the first chapter of it. Genesis 1 is the very first chapter of the gospel. It's the very first chapter of us understanding what grace, what is grace other than God unnecessarily moving towards the created order in love and in kindness. Completely unsolicited, unnecessary, no reason that God should need us to exist, to go do his thing. But God moves towards anyway. That's the story of Genesis 1. God moving towards that which he has made, blessing them with commands, and then specifically giving the command, the blessing of being made in God's image. This is God's grace on display. And as image bearers, we are meant to then be recipients of and beacons of that grace. It's, it's difficult to overstate the significance of being made in God's image. I, I want to, as we, as we wrap up, I want to ask two questions. Um, bother you with two questions to have on your heart and mind as you, as you go out. The first one is this. If God's posture towards all and calling to all is one of grace, we must ask the question, what are the barriers to me seeing every single person this way? What, what, what are the things that I've let build, build up in my life, whether it's uh, certain inputs or certain ways of thinking that I've left just unchecked for too long? I've known, ah, that's probably not right, but I'm not going to do anything about that today. Uh, that might be might be time to, to work on that. What are the barriers to me seeing God moving in grace toward each and every person? What keeps me from believing that that's what God is up to? What makes me think that I want God to do that in my life and not in another? That's what we are saying when we write off a person. So what are those barriers? Be a good reflection point. And finally, what does the posture of my heart say about my willingness to receive and extend the grace of God? If we were to, if we were to step back and look at our weeks, look at the last month, the last year, are my habits and my relationships and my interests, the way I spend my time, is all of that moving more towards one who is going to be a vessel of God's grace and goodness to the world? Am I trying to open myself up more to God's grace pouring into my life so that it can then flow through me? Or am I going the 
comfortable American way of just like trying to find happiness, just trying to get by, just trying to do my own thing and so nobody bothers me too much and then I'll get to the next week and all of a sudden it's, it's Monday and I'm just doing it all over again. Know this, Westside. Know that the truest thing about you, the truest thing about every single one of you is the grace of God towards you. God's gracious posture towards you. His deep, deep love to you. And he can rescue you. He can rescue us from lives of chasing comfort. He can rescue us from from lives of trying to find satisfaction, trying to find that acceptance in any other place. Because that's where we waste so much of our time. We spend so much of our energy trying to find it somewhere else. And here, the, the very first chapter of Scripture is telling us, this is going to be all about a God who is going to move towards you no matter what. No matter what. So will you hold your life with open hands? This is the posture of faith. Saying, God, take it, leave it, do whatever you have to do to fill me with your grace. Mark me with your grace so that my life can then be marked as grace. Worship team, let's sing. Feels like a good thing to do right now. As the team comes up, is there a word that comes to mind? Is there an area that comes to mind? A person that, that comes to mind? Some sort of work that God's just kind of putting on your heart right now. What, what is that? Maybe write it down. Um, I'm going to pray real quick, and I would just invite you as, um, as I pray and then as we, as we sing, just, just to hold the hands out open like this. We talked last week about receiving God's newness. This week we're talking about receiving God's grace. Sometimes the things that we do with our body indicate what we are doing with our, our hearts. So if you feel comfortable, just leave your hands out like this. Jesus, we, um, we build up so many things in our lives that so many barriers that keep us from understanding your deep love and grace towards us. And we ask in Jesus' name right now that you start breaking those things down um, and that we, over time, learn step-by-step in faith to trust that your spirit wants to get in and do some renovating in the, in the rooms of our heart, in the rooms of our lives. So may we, may we hold with open hands the stuff that we clutch so tightly sometimes.